from lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota and SixFootMama.com. This is Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling. Still Growing is a gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to Still Growing, and thank you for listening. I'm your host, Jennifer Ebling. On today's show, I welcome award-winning designer Jan Johnson to the show to discuss her book, The Spirit of Stone, in which Jan presents a beautifully photographed, inspiring guide to 101 practical and creative stonescaping ideas for your garden, from practical steps paths and garden walls to naturalistic dry streams, inspired rock gardens, and Jan's personal favorite, reflexology paths. Jan has 30 plus years of experience in landscaping, and this comes in quite handy because she's worked with a lot of stone during countless installations over the years. Designer, author, and teacher, Jan is particularly interested in the relationship between outdoor spaces and their effect on our peace of mind. The Spirit of Stone examines stone from both the aesthetic and functional perspective. Now, Jan's early experience with stone began during her college years working in a landscape firm in Kyoto, Japan. And she's carried that experience with her through life, showing a loving appreciation and profound sensitivity to Japanese influences in gardening, something I especially admire about her. Awarded a 2014 Association of Professional Landscape Designers Award, Jan studied landscape architecture at the University of Hawaii and got her horticultural training from a Versailles-trained French gardener at Mohonk Mountain House in New York. Her design firm is Johnson Landscape and Pools. Jan has taught at Columbia University and currently teaches at the New York Botanical Garden, where she won Instructor of the Year. Jan loves to share her insights in the beneficial effects of gardens and gardening with others. And this new book of hers celebrates the ancient material of stone and its use in our landscapes. The Spirit of Stone with Jan Johnson. That's the topic of today's show, and it's coming up after an update on the listener community for the show and this week's Garden News Roundup. Well, I want to start out by saying a quick word of thanks if you're listening to the podcast for the very first time. And if you're a regular listener, thanks for coming back to the show. I'm so glad you're here. And of course, I always say that I hope you're listening to a bunch of gardening podcasts because it's such a wonderful way to grow and learn as a gardener. Now, this week, listener Phil Coster just shared in our Facebook group about a new podcast called On the Ledge, and Phil wrote this. He said, it's all about indoor plants, so for those of us to enter winter without a greenhouse, maybe a future guest on the Still Growing Podcast? I like that idea. 
Now, when Phil shared this in the group, listener Craig Thompson chimed in and he said, I love this podcast. It's produced by Jane Perrone, who until recently was the gardening editor at The Guardian newspaper. It's all about houseplants. So check out On the Ledge. It sounds like a good one. I'll be looking into it this week myself. Anyway, I'm so honored that you're spending some time here listening to the Still Growing Podcast. And if you like it, please go ahead and share it with your gardening friends and family. I'd also like to invite you to join the listener community for the show. It's a free private Facebook group that I host for listeners of the show. And these folks are made up of gardeners of all skill levels and locations. And you can find it on Facebook by typing the name of our group into the search bar. Just search for the Still Growing Podcast group and the listener community will show up at the top of the search results in Facebook. Now, there are a number of benefits you can enjoy by joining the group. First, you get access to all of the great garden articles that are featured in the Garden News Roundup. Second, the Facebook group is the only place I go to pick lucky listeners for any show giveaways. Third, you get to interact with the great guests that have been on the show, like today's guest, Jan Johnson. And last week's guest, Craig LaHoulier. And finally, there is no spam in our group. The content I share with the listener community is something I work really hard to make sure is helpful and worthwhile for you. So everything I post there is curated with you in mind to help you and your garden grow. Plus, it's free and easy to join. So the next time you're on Facebook, just search for Still Growing Podcast Group in the search bar and then just request to join. It's that easy. I'd love to meet you in the group. Well, with that, let me welcome new members to the community, Franklin DeJesus, Connie Bowers, Jillian Tapari Monch, Mary Jennings Pearson, Sarah White, Deb Grant Howard, Christina Pybe, Sule Power, Ruth Campion, Claire Campion Erickson, Juliana Peterson, Maria Harton, Dina Parham, Joy Busloff, Georgia Brennan, and Judy Maxwell. Welcome, you guys. All right. In the Facebook group this week, I want to make sure that I announce the two winners of Craig LaHoulier's books, and they are Beth Wall and Penny Hubbard. So congratulations, you two. I know you're already in the listener community in the free Facebook group for the show, The Still Growing Podcast Group. If you wouldn't mind, go ahead and private message me with your email and your physical address. We'll make sure you get a copy of Craig's book, Epic Tomatoes. Congratulations, Beth and Penny. Don't forget, if you have questions or comments for the show, you can always contact me via the phone number for the show. It's 865-333-GROW or 865-333-4769. All right, now it's time for the Garden News Roundup. This is a curated group of posts and articles that I've shared over the past week with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group, and it's made up of a dozen different segments. Now, what's nice about this for you is that you can stay somewhat informed of the news and horticulture and gardening just by listening to this part of the show each week, and you can easily check out these curated articles 
articles and posts for yourself because I share all of it with the listener community in the free Facebook group, the Still Growing Podcast Group. So if you hear something and you want to read the full article, there's no need to take notes or track down links. Just head on over to the group and join. Well, let's start out with a quick guest update. Past guest Marta McDowell was recently featured on Margaret Roach's Away to Garden, another excellent podcast. So if you enjoyed listening to Marta on the show back in episode 585 in early September, you can find out a little bit more about her latest book, The World of Laura Ingalls Wilder, and the landscapes that defined her stories in the Little House books. She had a great conversation with Margaret, and it's always a pleasure to listen to Marta McDowell. So check that out when you get a chance. In Sustainability is a wonderful post that got shared that's called Bugging Me. And what I loved about this post is that it's talking about postponing tidying up in your garden just a little bit longer. And the author wrote, We had a couple of sunny autumn days lately, and I determined to get out into the garden. It needs tidying up, I decided, so out I went. And by the time this post wraps up, she's been having this imaginary conversation with these bees that are busily pollinating all of the beautiful fall-blooming perennials, and the bees are saying, bug off. Don't tidy up just yet. I want these last flowers. And the gardener writes, So I gave in, and I'm slowly redefining gardening as being with the garden rather than interfering with it. And it rewards me. A great reminder not to rush putting the garden to bed this year. In the Continuing Ed segment, John Sheeper's Kitchen Garden Seeds shared a great post that was simply called Bringing Herbs in from the Cold. Now, this made me curious because this is not something that I regularly do. So I thought, oh, maybe I'm missing out. Let me read about it. But it turns out, here's what they said. After many years, we found that bringing herbs indoors can be more trouble than it's worth. Garden soil and plants almost always contain insects that can quickly infest houseplants. Providing adequate light is difficult. Instead, they focus on harvesting herbs before they succumb to chilly weather. And I do the same thing. I'm still outside harvesting, and then I'm working to preserve them to get me through the winter. John Sheepers always does such a wonderful job of curating recipes. And of course, in this post, they don't let us down. They share how to do a basil pesto, a compound butter, and then they've got a few other storage ideas for us, including freezing them and then also infusing them in oil. Lots of great, helpful, useful tips in this post. So thank you, John Sheepers. There was a great post by Steve Nix this week that was called A Beginner's Guide to Tree Identification. Lots of great shortcuts in this post. And then Gardenista had a great post that was featured in their Can This Garden Be Saved segment. And it was simply called My Vegetable Garden Looks Messy. And the advice here is to clean up the edges. Now, in this post, they used Everedge. Everedge apparently has a booth at the Chelsea Flower Show every year. And it's a professional level edging, by the way. 
so it really affords a crisp, clean look. But you could accomplish this with other edging as well. The point of the article is that if you want to make your garden look a little cleaner, a little less chaotic, which it can tend to do this time of year, a nice, clean edge can do a lot to elevate the garden. In the how-to DIY segment, F-Stoppers, one of my favorite photography sites, did a great job on a post that they called Making the Most of Autumn Colors This Fall. Here's what they said. Basically, the best way that I have found to start tracking and planning locations for autumn shoots is really to start watching weather reports. Specifically, start tracking locations that are either the furthest north or that are at the highest altitude. When it starts cooling off and you know that the color changes are coming, start scouting some of those locations. As soon as that furthest or highest location starts turning color, then that should give you a rough gauge to operate on for starting to plan shoots in lower locations. Then it goes on to say, for those of you who have yet to see any leafy changes yet, I recommend doing some pinpointed Google weather searches for any locations that might give you a clue into how quickly your autumn season is progressing, as well as checking specifically into the locations that you want to work in. So pay attention to temperatures, dramatic changes in temperatures, and moisture content. Each of these indicators will give you that much more of a head start in planning for your autumn photographs. This is great advice. And the only other thing that I would add to this is that put your shooting time on your calendar. So once you see that forecast and once you've scouted your locations, set aside some time, designate some time to go out and take pictures. Otherwise, you won't. Things will get busy. Other things will interfere. And then once you know, you'll have a big rainstorm and all the leaves will get blown off the trees. So get it on your calendar and then get out to those fabulous locations that you've scouted and take those pictures. All right. Also in the how-to DIY segment is this post that was simply called The Best Kept Plant Lady Secret is Something You're Not Doing. And the crux of this post is all about keeping your houseplants clean. And these tips were from Rebecca Boleen, the founder of Greenery NYC. And she gives lots of tips on how to keep your houseplants clean, including recommending that you give your houseplants a good shower twice a year. And that's the first thing I do when I bring my houseplants back in the house from being outside all summer is they get a nice long shower. That helps mitigate any pest issues that they may have, and it cleans them up for their time in the house, especially during the holidays when I know that I'm not going to have a chance to probably really attend to them. And then once the Christmas tree comes down, that's kind of my internal clock, my internal signal to get back to paying attention to my house plants. So that will be when they get their second big shower. And by then they can be a little bit parched too, because it gets so dry in Minnesota in the wintertime. Anyway, I liked this post with all of these great tips from Rebecca. You should check it out if you're a houseplant addict. 
in the plant spotlight this week, Botanical Interests shared a great post about holy basil, and their recommendation is to give the gift of holy basil tea to warm up autumn's chill. Holy basil, of course, is also known as Tulsi, and it's believed to have medicinal properties. And lots of people enjoy Tulsi tea this time of year. There were many great posts in the news segment this week. There was a fun post about the Netherlands. And when I introduced this post, I said, well, it's more than just tulips. The title of the post was called This Tiny Country Feeds the World, and it was featured in National Geographic. This post was fascinating because I had no idea that the Netherlands was such a huge food producer. Let me read you this excerpt. Seen from the air, the Netherlands resembles no other major food producer. A fragmented patchwork of intensely cultivated fields, most of them tiny by agribusiness standards, punctuated by bustling cities and suburbs. More than half of the nation's land area is used for agriculture and horticulture. Banks of what appear to be gargantuan mirrors stretch across the countryside, glinting when the sun shines and glowing with eerie interior light when night falls. They are Holland's extraordinary greenhouse complexes, some of them covering 175 acres. These climate-controlled farms enable a country located a scant thousand miles from the Arctic Circle to be a global leader in exports of a fair-weather fruit, the tomato. The Dutch are also the world's top exporter of potatoes and onions and the second largest exporter of vegetables overall in terms of value. More than a third of all global trade in vegetable seeds originates in the Netherlands. And then this article goes on. But once again, the title of it was called This Tiny Country Feeds the World, and it offered many, many interesting details about agriculture and horticulture in the Netherlands. A fascinating read. Also in the news this week was this post that was featured in popsugar.com, and it was called, This is the most underrated flower more brides should consider for their weddings. So, spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's carnations. Now, that's pretty surprising. I don't think anybody would guess that. But this is what Christina Stembel of Farm Girl Flowers is saying. And she says that most designer florists love carnations now, but you get chastised for it. There are even new varieties of carnations that people don't even know are carnations. So they kind of pull the wool over people's eyes. The botanical name for carnations, of course, is Dianthus. And sometimes when Christina's working with brides, she'll just refer to the carnations as Dianthus because brides will be more willing to put Dianthus in their bouquet than they would be to say, yeah, go ahead and put some carnations in the bouquet. That's pretty clever, I thought. That was a fun post. There was another fun post that was shared on Apartment Therapy this week, and the title of it was called Get On Board with Pinterest 
most popular plant trend, and that is shower plants. The term shower plants is up 302% on Pinterest, and these would be house plants that you bring into your bathroom because they enjoy the steam from the shower. So again, as people are looking to transition their house plants from being outside and they want to create maybe a warmer, more tropical environment, they want to put them in their bathrooms. And so they're trying to determine what plants are best suited for being in the shower. Finally, there was a wonderful little post I found on Twitter this week, and it was called, This Woman Has the Ultimate Guide to Buying Perfect Vegetables. It was shared on the 25th of September, and here's the context. Not trusting her husband to follow just the words of her shopping list, a woman added illustrations to artist Era Londhi jotted down a shopping list for her husband, but her list has since gone viral. So for instance, she writes tomato, and then under that, she's got this little bulleted list. She's like, some yellow, no holes or cracks, and then she's illustrating this with drawings. Under onion, she has small size, round shape, so she's drawing a perfectly round onion, and she's crossing out an onion that's flat. Under potatoes, she wrote, medium size, no eyes or green coloring, one kilogram. It goes on and on, but it's just hilarious. I loved this post. So anyone who feels that they need to annotate a shopping list for their spouse would get a kick out of seeing this little post. It was adorable. In the dream guest segment this week is Alice Bow. She's an English landscape garden designer. And she recently had a garden that she had designed featured in GardenVisit.com. Now, Alice is a contemporary garden designer, and the gardens that she creates are very striking. And the space that she just did that's featured in this article had the major challenge of creating a space intimate enough to be a private family garden, yet capable of hosting large parties. And I love what she did here. Now, this post is shared in the Facebook group. So if you're looking for ideas for a new landscape for entertaining, a garden that needs to serve some double duty, this one will give you lots of ideas. In Science This Week was a fun article just simply called Why Do Leaves Have Such Different Shapes? There's lots of science in this article, but I love how it starts out. It says, there's one thing about leaves that science has long agreed on. They only grow so big as available water allows, but not so big that the whole plant overheats. So when it comes to the size of leaves, plants sing a simple refrain. Water grows, sunshine restrains. Fascinating. In recipes this week, I featured many fall favorites. The first is a roasted broccoli creamy soup. That one was from SeriousEats.com. Then there was a great post on Food 52 called What to Do with Leftover Roasted Vegetables. Lots of great ideas in this post. Everything from creating a pot pie to making soup with them, to making sauces for meat or fish. Then finally, thekitchen.com shared a fun post that's simply called Don't Make the Mistakes I Made When Roasting a Pumpkin. Let me give you the cliff notes to this post, and then if you're interested, you can go back and read more. The author writes, Yes, 
Huge jack-o'-lantern pumpkins just don't give you very good squash for roasting. If you want good tasting squash, use something else like a pie pumpkin or acorn squash. In shopping this week, Gardenista says there's some required reading for all of us. It's the new book by Ethne Clark, and it's called The Mid-Century Modern Garden. Now, Ethne was living in England and writing books on gardening and landscape history, and then she moved back to the United States, and she bought a mid-century ranch built in Colorado in 1958. So she has a unique perspective when it comes to writing about mid-century homes. But this one is on my shopping list. And if you have any interest in that particular topic, add it to yours as well. Then finally, Organic Life shared six stunning works of indoor plant art that you can snag for cheap on Etsy. And I love the author who wrote this. She said, I need all of these. But basically, these were all suggested pieces of art that you can buy that are incorporating fern art and ferns. So the use of lots of dried ferns to create these wonderful images. So you can give that a look if you're looking for some one-of-a-kind art pieces with a garden theme. Finally, an inspiration. There was a fun post from Apartment Therapy that was showing the before and after of a scraggly old yard that gets turned into a beautiful oasis. And in summary, the owner who went through this transformation had these words of wisdom, patience, patience, patience. Gardens never look great at the beginning, and you have to be open to removing elements that aren't working. Secondly, educate yourself about what makes a great garden. Soil components, choosing the right plant for the location, visit garden tours for great inspiration. You can save a lot of money if you're willing to do the work yourself, but always understand your limitations. Sometimes it's better to hire professionals for important things like electrical and tree removal. Great points here, and I love looking at those before and after posts. They're so fun and so inspiring. The Prairie Ecologist shared their photo of the week, and I loved it because, of course, it's showing these late-blooming fall perennials like asters, and they were just covered with pollinators, like a jaw-dropping number of butterflies and bees on this single aster bloom. It was just mind-boggling. So beautiful. That one was a favorite post of mine this week. And then finally, Jason and Judy over at Garden in a City shared a really wonderful post about returning to your garden after you've been on a long trip. Anyway, this husband and wife team shared pictures of their garden, what it looked like when they returned home. And boy, that had to be a sight for sore eyes because their garden looks fantastic. So even though it looks like they were gone for a little bit, like maybe a little bit over a week or two, boy, did they come home to a beautiful garden. So welcome back, Jason and Judy, and gorgeous pictures on your blog this week. The quotables for this week all have to do with stone, and of course, many of them are featured in Jan Johnson's book, The Spirit of Stone. Here we go. This first one's by Helen Keller, The Song of the Stone Wall. Unresponsive, rude are the stones, yet in them divine things lie concealed. Here's one from 
Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. A rock pile ceases to be a rock pile the moment a single man contemplates it, bearing within him the image of a cathedral. Here's one by Henry S. Adams. As a rule, a rock garden should not be near the house. It is something savoring of the wild that does not fit within most architecture. Here's one by Calvert Vox. Nature first, second, and third. Architecture after a while. Here's a quote my mom loves, and it's featured in Chapter 6 of Jan's book about stone walls. It's by Robert Frost. Something there is that doesn't love a wall. Then finally, here's the quote that starts out Chapter 1 in The Spirit of Stone. I'm not sure of the author's name, but it goes like this. When stone is endowed with personality, one can find it delightful company. Well, that's it for the Garden News Roundup for this week's show. Just a reminder, you can get all of these posts with links and bonus content in your Facebook feed. If you join the listener community in the free Facebook group for the show, the Still Growing Podcast Group, I'd love to meet you in the group. With that, let's transition to the topic of today's show, The Spirit of Stone with Jan Johnson. Jan's book, The Spirit of Stone, came out in February of 2017. And from the title alone, you can ascertain the reverence that Jan feels for stone. In fact, Jan has a passion for the effect of gardens on our well-being. It's a beautiful book. Jan took all of the pictures herself, and that gives you an idea of the number of installations she does with her landscape business. As Jan likes to say, natural stone, that most ancient of materials, adds an authentic touch to an outdoor space that nothing else can match. While plants may temporarily steal the show, a low stone wall, solitary standing stone, or dry stream remains unwavering through the years. Isamu Noguchi, the designer and artist, summed it up best. Any gardener will tell you that it is the rocks that make a garden. They call them the bones of the garden. The Spirit of Stone is an essential idea book for anyone looking to add dimension and resilience to their landscape. The tips and photos will inspire designers, homeowners, gardeners, and stonemasons alike. Miriam Goldberger, author of Taming Wildflowers, said this about the spirit of stone. Celebrated garden author and landscape designer Jan Johnson has sifted her sophisticated natural stone expertise into a clearly written and companionable guide to stone gardening success. And this great compliment was from Fran Soren, the author of Digging Deeper. The Spirit of Stone is overflowing with both inspiration and instruction on how to use stone creatively in the landscape. Jan focuses on soulfulness, authenticity, beauty, and practicality of stonework in an outdoor setting. The Spirit of Stone 
is a delightful celebration of the versatility of this solid, durable rock. As a speaker for botanical garden show audiences, Jan loves to share her insights on the beneficial effects of informed garden design, her unique approach incorporating ancient practices with contemporary ideas is entertaining, inspiring, and informative. Jan presents her popular illustrated slide talks at major flower and garden shows across the United States. She's also the author of Heaven is a Garden, now in its third printing, and she has a blog titled Serenity in the Garden. Jan's landscapes have been featured in This Old House, Landscape and Architecture, New York Cottages and Gardens, Women's Day, and Red Book, just to name a few. I think you're going to really enjoy my chat with Jan. With that, it's time to rock and roll with the Spirit of Stones, Jan Johnson. Well, welcome, Jan. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. I wanted to start out by having you read something from your wonderful introduction to your book, The Spirit of Stone. And it starts out with, I have a soft spot for hard rock. Oh, yes. I have a soft spot for hard rock. During my four-decade career as a professional landscape designer, I have incorporated stone in a large variety of outdoor settings. It is, in my opinion, an indispensable part of a garden. My love of stone was fostered by my time living in Kyoto, Japan, as a college student years ago. I interned in a landscape architecture office and on weekends, I would visit the historic Japanese gardens. I saw how natural stone and stonework was of central significance in their landscapes. I subsequently studied landscape architecture in Hawaii, where I experienced the fiery beginnings of rock by watching molten lava flowing and cooling into lava rock. As a young adult, I became a rock climber, and my relationship with stone deepened. During ascents on New York's Schwangunk Mountains, I would examine the vertical cliffs up close and see the cracks, fissures, and protrusions of the rock as a challenge and an opportunity. I learned to place my fingers inside the crevices in the stone as a climber does, which sometimes meant strong handholds and other times a delicate fingertip grip. I later lived near Barry, Vermont, home of world-famous granite quarries. And I would stand in awe as I watched giant slabs being hewn from the earth. Ultimately, I settled in Westchester County, New York, where rough fieldstone walls, quartz-laden boulders, and classic bluestone walks and patios are found in abundance. From these diverse experiences, I have learned to cherish stone's quiet beauty and its steadying qualities. Thanks for that, Jan. You've had quite an adventure in your lifetime seeing stone from so many different vantage points, from Japan to Hawaii and all the way to the East Coast. And I didn't quite realize it until I started to write this book, and I thought, geez, I really have had some relationship with stone, haven't I? Yeah, and pretty unique, too. What was that experience like being in Japan when you were a college student? Well, that was life-changing. I had gone there thinking I'd become an architect, because I'd grown up in, in a city, New York City, and really didn't have much experience with outdoors and gardens and all. But when I visited those Japanese gardens, it had such an impact on me. It changed everything. I became a 
studying landscape architecture and was most impressed by their stonework in their gardens. How did this book come about for you, Jan? Oh, it's quite interesting. I had written another book a few years ago, came out in 2014, called Heaven is a Garden, published by St. Lynn's Press. And about a year or so afterwards, the publisher called me up and he said, you're really into stone, aren't you? Because one of my chapters was called A Rock's Resonance. And I thought, geez, I guess I am. He said, well, would you consider writing a book on stone, stone in the garden? And I thought, how am I going to fill up a whole book just about stone? I couldn't even imagine it. Well, as it turned out, I wrote so much about stone in the garden and the landscape that we had to cut 40 pages. Oh, my goodness. You know, when you start out your book, there are eight chapters, all devoted to stone. And on page 15, the first chapter echoes the title of your book. It's called The Spirit of Stone. I thought it'd be fun to have you read this. You do such a wonderful job of introducing us to this topic. Oh, yes. Stone is the original building block of our world. It rises out of the earth, forming mountains, cliffsides, and rocky outcrops. Unlike the sky, which is ever-moving, stone is solid and unwavering. It resounds with the energy of a place, which prompted ancient peoples to see large rock formations as endowed with special powers. Stone is timeless, condensing the present, past, and future within its core. This is what the spirit of stone is all about. Andy Goldsworthy, a British environmental artist who works intimately with natural rock, explained it this way. A lone resting stone is not merely an object in the landscape, but a deeply ingrained witness to time. I loved that. I loved the whole concept of a witness to time. And just hearing you read this, it made me think about our conversation, the pre-chat where you talked about what a garden would look like or what a garden would feel like if there was no stonework in that garden. I always say that stone is the overlooked player in our gardens, that while we might swoon over the plants, we just overlook the rock work or the natural stones sitting about. But if you think about it, it forms a compelling counterpoint to the plant material. So I like to say that it's kind of like the yin and yang in the garden. You need both to make it complete. Indeed. One of the things I love about what you did in this very first chapter is you give us some very unique and innovative ideas for incorporating stone in our landscapes. And you introduce us to some somewhat obscure ideas around what we can do with stone. The first one's on page 17, and you talk about things like having stones that are in place and standing stones, and you introduce us to the concept of a dolmen. What is a dolmen? Dolmens are ancient. The Celtic people created dolmens, and you see them all over Europe. But what they are are these huge rocks that sit precariously on smaller rocks. And you'll see them in Ireland, you'll see them in England, and you even see them here. I have a photo in the book of one that's in um, North Salem, New York, that is a huge rock sitting atop three smaller stones. No one knows how they are made, but they are quite compelling. And that leads the dolmen idea of, of rocks as these kind of 
signifiers of something leads to uh, what I talk about called standing stones. They have quite an appeal too, pointing upwards to the sky. Yes, I love what you said, not only about the dolmens, but also about standing stones. Standing stones are really these pieces of stone that you're selecting because instead of laying them flat, you're allowing them to stand in the landscape. They're very vertical. So I'm imagining selecting a standing stone, placing a standing stone. What are your thoughts on incorporating things like dolmens and standing stones in the landscape? Well, you know, you can use any kind of stone that speaks to you. If it's a long, narrow, or pointed stone, that's the natural stone to use as as a standing stone. But it can be fissured stone that's full of character, or it could be a, a smooth tapered slab, you know, the choice is yours, but if you can place them singly within a plant bed and it just draws the eye so that say you have a whole mass of hostas or something, by adding a standing stone right in the middle of that, it it makes it so unique it, and it, it, like I said, it draws the eye. The standing stone can do that to a garden. Yeah, and some of these standing stones that you're showing are like four and five feet high. These are not little standing stones. Yeah, no, no, not not fourteen inches tall. But it doesn't. It could just simply be three feet tall or something like that. So you had three of them in a row. That would make quite a statement, also. So it doesn't necessarily have to be super tall. That's right. Something else that was very sweet that you mentioned is on page twenty, and you call it. A napping stone. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I have I have a cat, and uh, she always goes outside and sits on this one stone in my garden. And so I thought, look at that. And may I read what I just wrote? It's just two lines here. Absolutely. It says, "Pets love to soak up the sun while stretched out on a large rock. So why not place a large flat stone in your garden as a napping place for your pet?" It's the opposite of a standing stone and can be nestled in some foliage hidden away. I just thought that's such a nice little thing to do for an animal. It's wonderful. You know, listener Danny Perkins was in the Facebook community a couple of weeks ago, and he shared an image of his cat all curled up in a concrete bird bath. (laughs) (laughs) It was just priceless. But when I read about your napping stone, I thought, well, there you go. They like the heat of those stone elements. And why not be a little bit more deliberate about it? I know when I was placing stone in my own garden, I was thinking about the kids because I was placing stone in an area that's around the basketball hoop. And I thought, okay, I'm going to place some flat stone here that I can sit on and Uh. watch them when they're playing or other players can be sitting on that stone as they're waiting, you know, to sub in. But also it becomes a wonderful stepping stone if the basketball flies into the garden, which it does quite often. So it's a way for them to get into the garden in a way that is okay with mom because they have these stones, these large stones. But I didn't think about ever incorporating stones specifically for pets, these napping stones. So I love that. Every garden should have one. Yes, they should. You know, one of the things that I know you're very passionate about is using local stone. And I couldn't agree more. Tell us about that. You know, we're all becoming more ecologically aware. 
And one thing that I became aware of was how stone can be so-called harvested. And I thought, you know, I really should mention the fact that people should just look to their local areas for their source of stone instead of trucking stones from far, far away. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that local stones actually, you know, resonate with your area perfectly. And so there's something like very uh, unspoken about the fact that if you use local stones, it fits better into a garden. So I wrote something here called Using Local Stone that I'd like to read. Stone that is native to your area can quietly connect you to a place since it resonates with its surroundings. By becoming familiar with the native stone, we can know the area better. The granite mountains of New England tell a different story than the schist of Manhattan Island or the limestone hills of Indiana. Each has a different pulse and impacts us differently. The Japanese architect Kengo Kuma likened using local materials to making sushi. If the journey of the ingredients is too long, the taste of the sushi is compromised. That is a problem that can't be solved by modern technology. And that program of using local material in season is the secret of good taste. There is something about using stone that belongs in your area. Yeah, I agree. So I always tell people, look around your property. Do you have some stone here? Let's use that before we start looking for our fields. And when we do, I'm so thrilled. Yeah. There is a part that comes next that's really talking about the folks that use stone as part of their art. And on page 23, you talk about this artistic element that people have created. Is it a cairn? Is that how you pronounce it? A cairn, yes, a cairn. What is a cairn? Well, it's at the most basic level, it's just stacked rocks. So if you're walking along in a woodland path, you might see some stacked rocks. That's considered a cairn. They were originally used in the um, British Isles as way markers and Scandinavia as way markers. So whenever you saw a pile of rocks, you knew whether to follow that path or not. Well, since then, of course, cairns have become quite the art form. And people have been stacking stones in like egg shapes and and just making beautiful, artful statements out of them. In fact, in my book, I talk about a stonemason named Devin Devine who takes it one step further and actually makes stone spheres. I love that you incorporated Devin Devine in your book because I had seen a few articles about Devin's work. In fact, I know I shared it in the listener community and the Garden News Roundup over the past year. But this is really something special. These spheres that he makes and there's incredible videos showing him how he puts these together. And there's no glue. That's the part that drives me crazy. I can't believe he's able to accomplish it with just purely stacking stone. I know. I really love what he does. It's, it's just, it's, they're mesmerizing. And I also love the idea that sometimes he includes small note paper with prayers and poems yeah. inside the uh, spheres. I think that's so wonderful. That's exactly right. You know, there is on page 27 something else you talk about that I was not familiar with, and it's Chinese scholars' stones. What are those? Oh, yes. Well, the Chinese, traditional Chinese gardens always have what they call 
Tai Hu stone in them. If you go to any traditional Chinese garden, you will see these limestone rocks sitting within the garden, and they're highly prized stones. And a garden is not considered complete in China until it has one of these stones. And they're full of holes that have been worn away by water. And the most prized of these are from the waters of Lake Taihu. So that's why they're called Taihu stones. They have a lot of character to them, and they kind of draw the eye. And the belief was that they enticed beneficial spirits into a garden. And that's why they were so prized. That's great. Do you want to read what you wrote about these at the top of page 27? Certainly. The accepted appeal of scholar stones rests on the notion that these fantastical rocks inspire lofty moods. Indeed, scholar stones stand tall and connote the vertical thrust of mountains. As Confucius said, the humane man delights in mountains. Well, what I love best about these is these are some stones that have been through some things. They've had a little bit of life happen to them. Yes. And I try to tell people, I say, you know, the stones were here before we came along, and they'll be here a long after we pass by. They really are memory keepers and testaments to time. There's one that you talk about driving past, and I'm imagining you right in the middle of writing your book, and you're driving down the highway, and the caption for this photo says, I saw this boulder sitting along a country driveway as I drove by. I quickly turned back to take this photo. Notice the (laughs) smaller stones wedged in the cleft. It's a Native American tradition. Introduce what you took a picture of and describe it for people. And then tell us about this tradition. I had never heard about it before. In the Northeast and, and maybe in the Midwest, I'm not sure, but there are split rocks in the woods, and there's these large, very large boulders that have been naturally split either by the weather or by glaciers or whatever. And when you see a split rock, many times you'll see that these these smaller stones stuck in the cleft, you know, and the cleft is not very wide normally. And so I kind of just always assumed that somebody would took a rock and did it for fun. But when I did my studying for this book, I found out that there was a Native American tradition to stick these smaller stones in these clefts because they thought these openings in the split rocks were doorways to the underworld. And so this is how they uh, covered them up, which I think, you know, hey, this belongs in a Stephen King novel or something, don't you think? Ooh, I like that. Yeah, I would have never guessed. You know, if I had driven by that, well, first of all, I wouldn't have stopped because I wouldn't have known what I'm looking at. And when you say that these are huge boulders, I mean, these are monstrosities. These are huge, huge, huge huge boulders. And if I would have seen that, that split boulder with rocks chucked in the middle of the split, I would have thought some kids did it or, you know, somebody was just messing around. I wouldn't have thought, oh, you know, that there's a Native American tradition behind it. So I love that you're pointing that out because I'll know what I'm looking at when I see it now. And I also love the whole mythology around the split rock. And you're right. It's it's very powerful. It really is. And so as I was writing this section, I was driving along and lo and behold, there was one right by somebody's driveway. And I just turned right around and said, oh my goodness, look at this. 
So, yeah, I had to mention that. <laughs> Jan, you're just fine. like me. I can't tell you how many times in any given month my poor family has to be like, oh, no, mom saw something, <laughs> some plant, some, you know, natural element, and then they're stuck until I get a few pictures of it. So, Well, it certainly beats staring at screens, don't you think? I mean, <laughs> at least we're looking at the real thing. Oh, Jan, I'm imagining going on a road trip with you. I don't think you and I would get very far. We'd really be <laughs> inching along. <laughs> I know. It's wonderful, though. It's great to meet a friend like this. It's great. (laughs) Well, chapter two of your book starts out, and you title it In Praise of Rock Gardens. And when you and I were talking in the pre-chat, I just had to smile because you include something here that I think is so important for people and so often underappreciated, and that is where to locate a rock garden. Yeah. It's not as haphazard as people would like to think. There are probably some tricks and tips and intuition that'll help guide us for where to place a rock garden in our garden. Well, I should start off by saying that some people just have a naturally formed rock outcrop, and so that would be the natural place. You don't have to make any decision whatsoever. There's the rock, and you can enhance it with the addition of small rock garden plants. But if you wanted to create a rock garden by bringing in stones and adding soil, then the question of where to put it is a very important one. I always tell people to make the rock garden a destination. Don't put it so close to the house that, you know, you just look out the window and see it. Why not put it farther out there in a corner or something like that? And then people can walk out and look at it. That's one option. I like that. And, you know, I had a little bit of a flashback when I was uh, scrolling through this chapter, when I was flipping through it, because you show people moving large boulders. And (laughs) (laughs) my husband and I have been married over 25 years, and we don't fight very often. But there is one fight that I remember from early on when we got married in our first house. And Apparently, I had decided that we were going to build an 80-foot-long retaining wall with huge, (laughs) huge, huge blocks. And we started on Memorial Day, and we didn't end till Labor Day. But I remembered this particular argument, and I'm standing on this wall, and I'm yelling at him, and he's yelling at me. And we were living in a little split-level house, and I went down to the basement with him, and we were just laying there because it was the coolest part of our house, and we were so tired. And I said, what were we fighting about? And he goes, Uh, I don't remember. He goes, but I can tell you this. (laughs) We will never do a rock project like this again on our own. From this point on, we'll hire it done. So I loved that you showed all the ways to move rock, but it is not for the faint-hearted. This is major, major work for people if you're going to attempt to do substantial rock work on your own. Absolutely. And I say in the book, oh, you can rent a tree cart and you can move rocks that way. But then the question is, how do you get the rock into the tree cart to begin with, right? (laughs) Yes, yes. And so uh, I had a lady ask me that the other night at a talk and I said, oh, that's easy. And they're all waiting for the answer. And I said, you hire two guys. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that's exactly right. 
Well, and that's what we've done. I'm a huge, huge advocate of getting the help you need to make your garden the space that you want it to be. There's no shame in that. And um, so when it comes to moving rock, uh, I do hire it done now. And then I'm thrilled when it's in place. It's wonderful. And, And speaking about placing rocks in a garden, there is a magnificent two-page segment in your book that's simply called Seven Tips for Placing Rocks in a Rock Garden. And I thought these tips were rock stars. So let's have you go through them because they're really great, great things to remember here. Yeah, there's several considerations that you should think about before making a rockery or a rock garden. The number one tip, Bury the rocks at least one-third in the ground to create a natural appearance. You can bury deeper if you want. And that definitely is a guideline. Bury the stones. I always say that we're going to plant the stones now, like the way people plant a tree. But it's true. Otherwise, it really looks like you just toss them on the ground. You have to make them look like they've always been there. Number two, there should be more rocks that sit horizontally than vertically. This grounds the scene. It's kind of like at a party where you want, you have a, a person with a large personality and they're kind of like the, the star of the show. Well, that's great. They can stand up tall, but you can't have too many of them at a party. It gets a little crazy. So what you do is you have that one tall rock and then you have the horizontal rocks around it. Number three, have the natural face of a rock visible in accordance to how it's a positioned in nature. That means if they have striations, don't have them going off at strange angles. Having them follow whatever looks natural in your environment. The natural face. You always can find that face. You just look at the rock and say, oh, that's the face. That's the best decision. Let me ask you really quick. If your rock face impaired, (laughs) if you feel like that is not your gift, you can have friends, neighbors, somebody come over, even take a couple of pictures and show it on social media and say, okay, what do you think is the face? Is it this one or this one? No need to stress out about something like this. Absolutely. And I always say, whatever decision you make, that's the correct decision. Because who's to say you're wrong, right? That's right. So I say, well, that's the face. Okay. There we go. But don't overthink it because then you drive yourself crazy. Just say, oh, I like that best. And that's the way to go. Perfect. Number four tip. If the rocks are stratified or have lines, locate the rocks so that these lines run in the same direction with each other. This ensures they don't look scattered and strewn about. And the only way to understand that is when you get a bunch of rocks together and if they have these little lines or striations, you'll understand. They should all kind of blend together. And that creates a more harmonious feeling. And the principle behind this is that if those rocks were set in the landscape and something came along to cause a stridation or some type of marking in the rock, if they'd all been there together, that's what would have happened. All those lines would be lined up. They would all be going the same direction. So you're trying to echo that. You're trying to make it look like they all went through this experience together, whatever caused those markings. That's it. You got it like a rock outcrop, but they'd all be in the same direction. Perfect. And number five, slant the rock slightly to direct rainwater into the soil. Now, this is one 
where I incline the rock at a slight angle and put soil behind it so that it's slightly inclined or slightly raised up in the back. And that helps direct the water into the soil. And it also shows off the rock a little bit better than, rather than if it was just straight flat horizontal. A little inclination always helps. Well, I have to say, you've totally busted me here. And when I saw this, I was like, oh, that Jan Johnson, she knows how to work with rock because this is what I'm guilty of. I try to get it level. I'm always thinking of oh, sitting surfaces, but I'm missing this little artistic tip, this little bent that you're putting on the rock by having them propped up in the back a little bit. Just a little bit. It doesn't have to be anything. It still looks natural, yeah. but it just does set it off a tiny bit more. It certainly does. I love it. If people were looking at this picture in the book, they would know exactly what you're talking about here and you show it with these rocks that are edging ornamental grass and the yeah. grass are spilling over if the rocks were just laying there flat and not propped up a little bit they could easily be swamped by the grass and you wouldn't appreciate that rock as much exactly you got it that's that's exactly it tip six locate larger stones toward the base of the slope and smaller ones uphill this mimics nature and that's true. The larger stones, if it was a natural situation, would fall to the base, and then the smaller ones would be on top. Somehow, if you look at a slope with rocks set in them, if there's larger rocks at the top and smaller ones at the bottom, it looks odd. And that's because nature would never do that. So that's why here, just think about it. And if you're making a little bit of a hill with rocks set into the hill, put the larger ones at the bottom. Good tip. And the last tip is... Number seven, space the rocks to create crevices where you can tuck in creeping plants that will wander over nearby stones. And that creates all the interest, you know, when you can just put in a little bit of a liriope or a sedum or a grass plant or a lamb's ear, and it just looks great tucked in those crevices. It looks great, and it just seems to be that that's where they love to be. They love to be surrounded by the heat of that rock. And you know, it's interesting, a lot of times in nature, you will see plants growing around rocks and they're a little bit healthier than ones away from the rocks because the rocks hold the water in the earth a little bit longer. It doesn't necessarily evaporate as quickly. Hmm. You know, you just got done talking about utilizing the crevices, but then you also feature something on page 52 called a crevice garden. And I had oh, yeah. never heard about this before. What is it and how can we recreate it? I think it looks amazing. Crevice gardens are the rave right now in rock garden circles. I think it started in Eastern Europe. And the whole idea is, again, to mimic nature where they have these crevice gardens in nature where there's vertical rocks sticking up. And so what you do is you take slabs and you set these slabs kind of, and they don't have to be big, they could be small. The one that's illustrated in my book is, is, is not that big at all. And it's just, you put the slabs somewhat vertical, vertical, but maybe askew a little bit, and you set them in a gravel base and you fill all around it with the gravel or half gravel and half soil. And then you fill around it and put in plants that can thrive in that kind of situation with the fine crushed gravel and all. It looks 
very rustic, but very beautiful with the rocks thrusting upward and the sedum plants kind of growing around it. And you can create all sorts of compositions. And then the rocks help to channel the rain, go down into the soil. Um, it's a beautiful idea. And it's all with rocks and gravel and rockery plants. It's such a focal point. If you're wondering, gee, I need a focal point for this garden. What can I do? This yeah. inspiring image of a crevice garden could be just the thing you're looking for. I really encourage people to check that out. Yeah, and you can see some great examples of it at various botanic gardens now. A lot of them are incorporating crevice gardens into their grounds, which is great. Yeah. On page 55, you talk about the dry landscape and a term that maybe people aren't familiar about, but it's from Japan. Karan Sansui. Yeah, you can see that I, I was so affected by my time living in Japan. Karan Sansui is the ultimate in rock gardens because all it is is stone and gravel. There's not many plants whatsoever. And the whole idea of this is meant to be a garden for viewing and, and observing rather than walking through. They're really more meditative place that you're supposed to look out onto and enjoy the spare, simple beauty of rocks and gravel. People are definitely interested in adding this into their garden, especially if they like that whole meditative approach. You know, what I thought of when I looked at this is, well, number one, I would love a Karin Sansui element in my garden, but I've got four kids right now and I, I <laughs> and couldn't, dogs, you know, and a dog, yeah. And I couldn't say, hey, stay off the gravel. I mean, my own gravel paths right now that I installed a few years ago, I absolutely love. They're one of my favorite elements of my garden, but they probably only get raked a couple of times a year. And then I still love them for the next couple of days, but it doesn't take long when you've got little feet you know, trudging over them and, and they start to get messy again. Absolutely right. Yes. I mean, you, you have to be a Zen monk, you know, wakes up every morning at 4.30 <laughs> to go out and rake the gravel. Yes. Uh, Is the raked gravel a real core element to a Karin Sansui garden? Oh, yes. I, I show illustrations of the patterns that you can make with the gravel. And I think that's kind of like an art form is okay, what's, they change it up. You know, one day it'll be one pattern with the waves. Another day it'll be ripples. Another day it'll be a water drop pattern. I mean, it, it's, it's quite fun. Part three of your book talks about sustainability. There's sustainable stone. On page yeah. 61, there's a beautiful picture showing mm. how you can mix and match stones in your garden. And this one picture mm. I'm showing has three different kinds of stone, all in a very small space. But coordinating stone in the same way you'd coordinate an outfit is pretty interesting in a garden. I really feel that stone is coming into its own right now because our emphasis on sustainable landscapes and what is more sustainable than stone? It's not manufactured in a factory. It can be easily cleaned. It's weatherproof. It can sit outside all winter long. It is the perfect element for a sustainable landscape. And so with that in mind, I illustrate in the book things like drainage channels that you can make using stone. And that's what you're referring to is this photo 
showing a drainage channel that has one, two, three, four different kinds of stone, and yet it's so beautiful. The channel itself is smaller stone, but it's edged with rounded rock to create this beautiful border, and then on the outside of that is a walking path made out of yet a different kind of gravel. And it really works. It does work, and it works so beautifully. A few pages after this is a wonderful follow-up to this because you talk about gravel, and then you open our eyes because we're not just talking about one particular product. There's a smorgasbord of gravel available to us nowadays, and I know you have some thoughts about how to pick it, what to pick, and what to look for. You know, it's so funny, isn't it? I mean, you'd say... What can you say about gravel? I mean, that must be the most boring subject, but it's not at all. Gravel now comes in all different colors, shapes, and textures and sizes. And what I urge people to do is go visit their local gravel and stone yard to get a little bit of an education before just ordering gravel, right? Because if you go there, they'll give you small plastic bags and you can fill it up with various types of gravel that they sell and take it back home and see what the different types look like in your yard. And, and what I also say is please use gravel or crushed stone that's local to your area. Don't pick something out from Colorado when you live in Pennsylvania. We don't want the trucking and all of that. We want to use the local materials. Mm-hmm. Well, and thanks for the pro tip, Jan, too, of bringing home samples, because that can really be helpful. You might pick something or bring a sample home, not really intending to go that direction, and then you see it, and you might fall in love with that. Exactly. Exactly. And by the way, don't make a gravel driveway out of rounded stones. This is something I always remind people. We look at these little rounded gravel, and we say, oh, that would be a beautiful driveway. But what you don't realize is that little rounded stones don't pack well together. And when you have a car on them with the tires, all they do is just kind of spread around. You need to get more angular stone for driveways. They pack together better. Yeah, that's another great pro tip. When we talked in the pre-chat, you said dry streams. We have to talk about dry streams. People are relentless with you when it comes to learning your thoughts on dry streams. Some people call them dry creeks, but I call them dry streams, whichever. But what it is, is actually recreating the look of a stream bed, but it serves as a real drainage catch basin and also at the same time, a beautiful decorative area in your garden. And I was hoping I could just read maybe one or two paragraphs to you on this. That would be wonderful. Okay, so this is where I call dry streams a beautiful way to catch runoff. A dry stream is a unique, sustainable way to incorporate natural rocks in a garden and address poor drainage issues. Made to look like a babbling brook, it does not normally contain water, but instead channels and collects rainwater allowing it to percolate into the ground slowly. It is essentially a shallow depression in the earth designed to slow and capture runoff. I first saw dry streams in Japan decades ago and fell in love with them. They follow the model of a watercourse filled with gravel and stones and may have plants along the banks. And that's basically what it is. Just It's a watercourse that is lined maybe with some rocks, 
if you choose, and then with plants along that. And it is such a beautiful way to solve a soggy problem. Two questions for you on this. One is, do you have any tips for us on how to install them like a pro? And do you advise using netting or some type of cover as we head into fall and winter here to keep your dry streams clean? Well, those are two great questions. I have a whole section on how to create a dry stream, but basically what it is is you're creating a channel. You're digging a channel, and the channel could be as wavy and curvy as you want. It could be as wide and narrow as you choose. And you dig out about 8 to 14 inches deep, depending on your situation in terms of wetness and, and how much runoff you want to capture. But you dig the channel and you throw the soil onto one side of the channel. And that way, one side of it is more elevated than the other. And when you plant plants, the plants on the elevated side are more easily seen from the other side. So you create the soil piled up on one side of your channel. And then you fill it with inexpensive gravel and line it with boulders, if you choose, on the sides of the channel. And then cover it with filter fabric because that prevents soil from going through. And then you top it with a very thin layer of more expensive rounded stones. But the bulk of the channel is filled with inexpensive gravel that you don't see. And that's how you build a dry stream. Not very difficult, actually. No. No, it's very easy. I, I show pictures of how to do it. And then... In response to your question about the netting, you know, I never did that. I've never put netting to catch the leaves, but it come to think of it, it's quite a smart idea. <laughs> I had just heard about it myself. I have a little river in my garden. I'd heard about this netting idea, and I thought, I'd love to try that this year. But it would work brilliantly for dry creeks as well as actual rivers in your garden. Absolutely. Great idea. Hmm. Great idea. Stone mulch. I think this is probably the most controversial thing in your book because people have such strong feelings about stone mulch, or they can. It's a little maligned because it does serve a purpose and it can be beautifully done. But I understand it because for anyone who's ever had to remove or work around stone mulch, again, this is something that can be so laborious. Yeah. It's true. Well, stone mulch in certain parts of the country, like in in drought-stricken areas, it's a great replacement for lawn, and it can make quite the statement if you've got these large, rustic stones, and they're set on top of the earth with, like, say, evergreen trees growing around them. It's a great answer to covering the earth and also looks wonderful. But sometimes people add smaller stones that they shouldn't, and they actually uh, start moving around a lot, and it just gets to be one big mess. So you have to use larger stones that don't tend to move, that stay in place, and that's the best way to do it. Hmm. And and do it judiciously, because if you cover whole areas with stone mulch, it looks positively arid and not very nice to look at at all, very harsh. Yeah, exactly. Well, and here in Minnesota, in the Midwest, 
the stone mulch that probably gets the most contempt from gardeners is, is the old white stone you know, that oh, people yeah. would put around their arborvitae in front oh. of grandma's house. And it's just, oh my goodness, people just could go on and on about that. Yeah, I know. Just And, and then when the sun hits it, it's just your eyes, and just, <laughs> like, just the glare is so intense. Yeah. So that's why I say stone mulch, yes or no. Yeah. Just be careful with it. Don't get carried away. Yeah. There was something here in your book on page 79 called riprap. Riprap is, you see it maybe along highways. And again, that can be a little bit overwhelming. It's stones placed very close together on a slope. It's similar to stone mulch. And, you know, it's meant to keep the uh, plant growth from taking over. But you can also create a riprap slope in place of a very low wall. And it looks great. If it's no higher than, say, three feet or something, and it's set beautifully into a a slope, it's a very nice effect. And it, too, is sustainable because it does direct rainfall down Hmm. to the base of the hill. Well, page 81 starts chapter four for you. And chapter four is called The Many Faces of a Stone Walk. And I wanted to depart from this just a little bit because this is something you do. You take people on stone walks and you have one coming up. Oh, that's right. I do. The Cultural Landscape Foundation, TCLF, is sponsoring the Spirit of Stone Walk at a place called Manitoga, which was the home of Russell Wright, an industrial designer. And it's located in Garrison, New York which is in the Hudson Valley. And we're taking a walk through his most amazing property that shows stonework and stone cliffs. And it's going to be a great time, October 15th. Thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, hopefully if people are nearby, they can take advantage of it. But this whole section is really about how do you create stone paths I had to chuckle when I saw it on page 99 because this is the one that if most gardeners are going to attempt a stone path, they're going to do those stepping stone paths, either through gravel or mulch or maybe even just lawn. This is, again, for anyone who has ever attempted doing it, if you don't do it right, if you don't nestle those stones in correctly, if you don't take time and think about how you want that to look, you can be all done with it and step back and go, ugh, I don't like that at all. I always laugh because I say to people, before you set the stones in the ground, walk on them first. Make sure that they're spaced in a way that you can walk on them. Because otherwise, it, they can force you to walk like a little uh, penguin or something. You know, you got to make sure you can walk easily on the, on the stepping stone path. And I tell you what, if anybody has ever created a stepping stone path and then been foiled by their own path because the stone is jutting up too much and you trip on it or you stub your toe, you're out there, God forbid, in flip-flops and you bust your toe open because you didn't nestle your, your stones down far enough, again... It's just really taking your time with these and not just thinking you can do it in an hour and be done with this project because there is a little bit of finesse that needs to happen here. And you should look at them. You should, before you dig them in the earth, place them and, and look at them for a few days before you say, yes, this is 
it because once you do it, that's the way everybody's going to follow forever and ever. And there's so many options, you know, in a single file or one next to the other. I, I try to show many photos here to illustrate how many ways you can do a stepping stone path. Yeah, you did a great job. And some of them are a combination of both. Some of them you have two stones side by side, and then the following stone will be a single stone that's extra wide. Oh, yeah. I tell you what, lining them up in a single file way doesn't always look great. So, I mean, that can be tough visually. You might want to stagger them. Other times, if you're trying to put the stones together almost like a puzzle, have them be a puzzle that's a little broken apart with some spacing in between, that can look funny. So again, I love your idea of just placing them and living with it for a little bit before you go to the effort of digging them down. Oh, yeah. Page 103 features something I know is one of your favorite parts of the book. And oh, yes. it's the therapeutic benefits of reflexology paths, which I'm so thrilled to have you introduce us. Well, you know, the practice of reflexology is an ancient healing art that focuses on your feet. And they say that there are more nerve endings in the soles of your feet than anywhere else in your body, which makes sense because, you know, we walk with our feet on the ground and that makes sense. But what's also fascinating is the traditional Chinese theory that there are pressure points in your feet that correlate to the organs of your body. And so their thinking is, that when you stimulate the bottoms of your feet, it, it also stimulates the energy and the blood flow throughout your body. Isn't that so great? Yeah. What they say is that if you walk on rounded stones, it actually relieves stress, improves balance, and enhances your physical and your mental well-being. So I just love this idea that you can use stone in the landscape to enhance your overall health. And when we're talking about reflexology paths, these are smaller stones, but these are also usually very rounded stones, right? Because we don't want to be walking on the rocks going, ooch, ouch, ooch, ouch. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so reflexology paths have rounded stones in association with somewhat pointed stones. And that's what you walk on. And if you have tender feet like I do, then you stay on the rounded stones. You're a little bit more risk taker. You go on the more pointy stones. So not a bed of nails. Not a bed of nails at all. But in uh, Singapore, they have these reflexology paths in the public parks. And people go along and they'll take their shoes off and they'll walk on the paths. And I just think this is such a great idea. Can you imagine if you had them in every public park in the United States and the little kids would love to walk on them Yeah. and the older people? I just think it's such a wonderful idea. You know, it's a way also for us to become more grounded. We're so often looking at our cell phone screen or our computer screens. We are losing touch with the earth. And I feel that reflexology pass is a great way to get us a little bit more grounded. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of a trend here. Like we can be ahead of a trend. And of course, we look to Asia so often for trends in the garden. I know last year yeah. I spoke with Katie Dubow of Garden Media Group. And one of the trends that they identified for 2017 is forest bathing, you know, getting oh, out yeah. in nature, being among, 
you know, the plants and the trees, especially the trees. And so I wrote about that in my first book, Heaven is a Garden. I wrote about um, Shinrin Yoku. Yep. Well, there you go. And so this is just one more element that can help ground us and connect us to the earth. So that's my goal is to have reflexology paths in all the parks in the U.S. So I hope somebody listening goes up and starts that right away. Get on it. Add it to your list. Well, there you go. In chapter five, I love the title of chapter five, and you say, Garden Steps Steal the Show. And the garden steps that you show are truly the ones that people ask you the most about. And these are the steps that are grass-covered, right? They're grass-covered steps. That's right. The, The riser is made out of stone, but the tread where you place your foot is grass. And that's not a new idea. This is an old idea. It's used in England quite a bit, but it's becoming more and more popular now. The biggest question I imagine you get when it comes to having grass steps is grooming. How do you exactly. take care that's of a grass the step? the only question I get. That <laughs> is invariably, I get it on every presentation I make. How do you mow the steps? And so what I say is that the weed eater, just take the weed eater and or weed whacker, whichever you call it, and that's how you maintain the grass steps. It's an inexpensive way to deal with a slope because really, say you just make risers out of, say, Belgian block or cobblestones or something you can get easily, and then you make the risers. And what I always tell people is make sure you give enough pitch to each step so that the water runs off. People sometimes will make these steps flat, like a regular step where you just flat where you put your foot. But remember, this is grass. And if you keep it flat, the grass will literally rot out. You have to have it pitched. The tread must be pitched. Okay. And see, that's great to know too, just from a platform standpoint, that when you're stepping on grass, you don't want it to be soggy or mushy. You do want that to have some little bit of runoff there. Yes, exactly. Section six starts talking about stone walls. You have a section that I thought was very interesting. And a lot of people are not, again, familiar with this term or the use of these. And these are sheltering walls. And yeah. yeah, and you do a great job of introducing us to sheltering walls on page 139. Let's have you read that, and then let's talk a little bit about just practically how we can add these to our gardens. Sheltering walls. Smart gardeners prize stone walls on the north and west of their gardens because they face the noon and afternoon sun. The stones in the wall absorb the heat on sunny days and slowly radiate it back to the plants in cool evenings. They also protect from westerly winds. Walled-in gardens use tall stone walls to mute noise, screen neighbors, and act as backdrops for espaliered fruit trees. People think of stone walls as somewhat like retaining a hill or separating one property from another. And I'm here to say, no, use walls to their best advantage. They create little microclimates, and that's why I say they are on the north and west of a garden, but they're facing the sun that is in the southern part of the sky. And so they they are, you know, things that grow near those walls pop up more quickly than others do in the springtime. And so use walls to create microclimates. 
I couldn't agree more. You know, our house is north facing. So our whole entire backyard was a sheer slope. And I wow. inadvertently did what you just suggested. I put I dug out the the backyard to make it flat. And then I put in all of these walls. Some of them are sheltering walls, but other ones are retaining walls. But the effect is the same. I've got tons of rock back there. And it truly is a microclimate in my own backyard. I bet, right? Mm-hmm. I have a neighbor who gardens next to me and she'll often say, how do you get that to grow? You know, she's looking over the fence into my back and she's always questioning, like, how come you can grow that and I can't grow that here? And I really can attribute that, I believe, to the microclimate that I've created back there with all of that hot rock. Yeah, exactly. Well, chapter seven talks about stone accents for your garden. And when you and I talked about this earlier, you said, ah, the fun part. Yeah, right. <laughs> Let's talk hey, about stone accents. Fun part because this is just rocks as accents in your garden. How fun can that be, right? Absolutely. And you give so many wonderful examples of stones that can add whimsy and stones that can be wonderful little features in your garden. I love the suggestion to elevate the stone or repeat stone elements or use stone as a bridge. I have that in my own garden, and I love that. Right. You even talk about stone waterfalls that you can use if you're doing that dry creek. Do a stone yeah. waterfall. Those pictures are amazingly captivating. No water involved, but it doesn't matter because it just kind of hints at water. It's great. Yeah. And you even include here some stone statuary. Are there some oh, yeah. things that you look at or look for when you're selecting stone statuary for gardens? No, I think that's a real personal decision. You know, some people, like, of course, I have that philosophical bent, so I love the Buddhas in the garden. But other people, you know, they like the little gnomes or the little stone frogs or whatever. I think it whatever makes you happy, you know? Yeah. And But the thing that I do like is I like stones that are touchable. And may I read you a little bit about that? Yes. So I have one page where it's called, Please Touch the Rock. And I say, rocks offer a unique opportunity to highlight the sense of touch in a garden. Placing your hands on the natural textured surface of a rock can subtly and physically connect you to nature. The feel of the striations, indentations, and coarseness of a stone may invigorate you while the smooth, rounded surface of a water-washed rock stone can be calming. And there is a wide variety of textured stones to choose from. Glassy rocks, layered sedimentary rocks, glacier-marked rocks, volcanic rocks. So why not choose rocks for their texture and encourage visitors to touch them? And I uh, show pictures here where you can get really interesting rocks that you see when you're walking along or something, bring them home and just place them in the garden and they're very touchable. I like that idea of just what you're saying, please touch the rock. And yeah. you're talking about this very tactile experience for people. And I thought you did a wonderful job of describing that in this paragraph at the bottom of 149. Oh, yes. The advice to touch a rock is based on more than feeling a stone surface. When we are in physical contact with stone through our hands or feet, even when we sit on them, we absorb the grounding energy that they offer. 
The contact with this earthy surface focuses our energy downward, hoping to anchor ourselves into the earth. These days, with all electronic tech devices around us, a little bit of natural rock grounding goes a long way. You might even consider keeping a touching stone on your desk or table and picking it up every so often for the same reason. You know, people come up to me at my talks to say, you know, I keep a pebble in my pocket and I touch it every so often. And I'm surprised how many people tell me that. So there, there is something about having a rounded stone with you or, or you can touch it that does keep you a little bit more on the earth. You're right. Chapter eight is simply called Plants and Stone. And here you talk about something that I'm passionate about, and that is growing plants in cracks and crevices of walls and stones on your property. And this can be in the stone paths or it can be in the stone walls, but it's that wonderful use of these tiny, tiny spaces. And some plants are just so thrilled to be planted in a crevice. You know, it's funny because people don't, when they have a stone wall or they have a rock outcrop, they don't often think about putting in, you know, plants that grow in cracks and crevices. And I'm saying you can plant them by wedging, you know, some soil into the gap and using very small plants. You might have to take some soil off of the plant roots and gently uh, nudge them into the crack, and they may not all take, but the ones that do become very happy. And so I give some recommended plants for crevice planting, such as the sedums, of course, and the stone crop, euphorbias, hens and chickens, and I show pictures of all of them to give ideas of what you can use. Of course, if you have a stone or you have a limestone, then you want to choose plants that like kind of a more limey kind of soil. That kind of stuff gets kind of uh, into the mix, too. But, yeah, why not? Just stick those little baby plants. Buy them small. I show how you can buy them small and stick them into the crevices. It's such a great look. And it's such a wonderful way to convey a little bit of age to your garden. If you've got a new garden and you want to age it quickly, put plants in crevices. That makes such a difference. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I talk about some of my favorite ones, like with sedum. You see, I could talk about plants all day, but like (laughs) sedum, Vera Jameson, I adore. And that one looks really great with stone. So many. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So I show the pictures. I, I have to get some talk about plants into my book. (laughs) Of course, of course. Well, you know, one of the things that I so love about the way you approach your topic, Jan, is that you really do show such a reverence and passion for whatever you're writing about. And in this book in particular, it's just truly your love and appreciation for stone that comes through. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, the pleasure's all mine. And I have to say, the ending to your book is just so touching. And I'd love to have you read this aloud to us. And then let's talk a little bit about this book, because I think it's a wonderful gift book for gardeners as well. Well, thank you. Here it is. My love of stone led me to work with rocks. Many of the photos in this book are from landscapes I have created. As I set them in a rock garden, along dry streams, or as standing stones, I enjoy a kind of rock awareness. 
I silently talk to the stones as I work with them. The operative word here is silently, because if I did this out loud, people around me would wonder what I was doing. But nonetheless, I do talk to the rocks. And surprisingly, the rocks respond and let me know if they are amenable to change or not. These rock conversations can be enjoyed by anyone. You just have to listen. It is the rock power that you feel in a stony place. If you pick a pebble up and carry it with you, then you have a little bit of that place with you. That influence extends to all things built with stones, such as walls and steps. They add an authenticity that man-made materials just can't. We co-create with stone. It is a collaboration between man and rock. You could say using rocks in our surroundings is our grateful nod to a bountiful Mother Earth, and that is good. As Douglas Wood notes in his book, Granddad's Prayers of the Earth, Rocks pray too, said Granddad, pebbles and boulders and old weathered hills. They are still and silent, and those are two important ways to pray. What a wonderful way to end this interview, Jan. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. If people want to get a hold of you, how can they reach you, Jan? I have a blog. It's called Serenity in the Garden. And I also am on Facebook. I have several Facebook pages. One is called Serenity in the Garden blog, very popular. And another one is called The Spirit of Stone, and it's a Facebook page that way. And Twitter, Jan Johnson 23 and Instagram, Jan.Johnson. And I must say my last name is J-O-H-N-S-E-N, Johnson. The good Norwegian um, so way to spell find it. Me. Yeah, people want to find me. I want to make sure they know how to spell my name. That's great. Well, Jan, thank you so much for being on the show with us and sharing your wonderful book, The Spirit of Stone. I know that everyone's enjoyed listening to this. It's such and, a um, wonderful tribute. I, and I'm thrilled to be interviewed by you. I think this is just a wonderful way to get the word out. And I love your podcast. Thank you so much, Jan. Well, that's it for our show today, featuring The Spirit of Stone with Jan Johnson. Isn't Jan a delight? I hope this episode gave you a renewed appreciation for stone and the dimension and timelessness it can bring to a garden. Anyway, once more, a big thank you to Jan for sharing her lovely book with us, The Spirit of Stone. I'm so thankful to my team at Podfly Productions. I want to thank my editor and project manager, Eric Begay, and my copywriter, Ayn Kadena. Just a reminder that I'll have all the generous information that Jan shared on the show today, as well as her upcoming events, on the Still Growing podcast page on my website at sixfootmama.com. That's the number six, F-T-M-A-M-A.com. I'd like to thank the women who make up my listener advisory board, Beth Engel, Beth Gardens in Illinois. She works at Griffin, a national brokerage firm and one of the finest companies in horticultural service. And Beth is also a board member of the PPA, the Perennial Plant Association. Denise Pugh, Denise Gardens in North Mississippi and is a contributing writer to Mississippi Gardener Magazine. Amy Von Atchen, 
Patricia Chandler Newport. Patricia is the owner of Backyard Urban Gardens out of Kego Harbor, Michigan, Deb Gibson, and Peggy Ann Montgomery. Peggy Ann is the brand manager at American Beauty's Native Plants, and she was featured back in episode 553, where we talked all about native plants and incorporating them into your landscape. I leave you today with a question. What parts of your garden would benefit from the addition of stone? You might consider adding some practical steppers, paths, garden walls, dry streams, rock gardens, or Jan's personal favorite, reflexology paths. Just some things to consider for your 2018 garden. And if you're serious about finally tackling that big project involving stone, it never hurts to start reaching out to designers now to get on their spring calendars for 2018. They do fill up quickly. Have a great week, everyone. Still Growing with Jennifer Ebling is a SixFootMama.com production made in lovely Maple Grove, Minnesota. Still Growing is a weekly gardening podcast dedicated to helping you and your garden grow.